וגם אני פתאום Welcome back to Kolot. This is your host, Rabbi Hillel Kapustin, director of the Columbus Community Kolot, and it's a great honor and privilege to come back to Kolot on our second season. This is really exciting, and I hope you all enjoyed our previous episodes with Rabbi Sean Kamenetsky and Yaakov Shweki, and we have this week an incredible guest, and we have... Um, Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg joining us soon. What are we going to talk about with Rabbi Goldberg? So I'm sure many of you know, if not all of you, about his incredible podcast, which I'm a, a big fan of, uh, Behind the Bima. So today we get to go behind Rabbi Ephraim's Bima and learn a little bit about Boca Tone Synagogue. Um, we get to learn a little bit about how he navigates being a pulpit rabbi with such a uh, diverse uh, you know, congregation. So it's going to be a pretty fun uh, episode. And... Um, I think you're going to enjoy it uh, very much as well. But before we get started, allow me to tell you about our guest. Rabbi Goldberg's dynamic charisma, breadth of Torah knowledge, and personal warmth attract hundreds to the shul and his weekly lectures and classes. In addition to his position at BRS, Rabbi Goldberg plays a leadership role in many vital components of greater South Florida community. And in 2010, he was recognized as one of South Florida's most influential Jewish leaders. He serves as co-chair of the Orthodox Rabbinical Board's Vata Kashris, as director of conversions for Beth Din of Florida and as POSIC of the Boca Raton Mikvah. He also serves on the board of directors of Cats Hill Day School, Hadar High School for Girls, and Friends of the IDF, and I'm sure many, many other things as well, which I don't want to take up the whole episode discussing. But without further ado, Rabbi Goldberg, welcome and thank you so much for joining Kolot. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to get my call out there. And I thought maybe we could start off, if you could tell our, our listeners, maybe a skinny version, a, a low-fat version of your background, where you're from, where you grew up, and sure. um, a little bit of how you got to where you are today. Sure. I grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey, and I uh, went to Yavin Academy. I went to Frisch. Um, I spent the summers after our 11th grade and 12th grade at Morisha Kolel, which were enormously impactful in my life, Rav Yitzhak Kohn. Ray Willig was the, the college kolal, a very intense learning program that had an enormous impact and really changed the trajectory of my life because the friendships that I formed there really determined where I went for my years in Israel and their friendships that I still cherish uh, very closely until today. So after uh, my years, after my uh, summers, I graduated high school. I went to Yeshiva Kambriyavna for two years, came back and I went to YU and was in Rav Shechtashir for several years and remained very close to him. And uh, we're very honored and privileged. Our community, we host him uh, fairly often, at least uh, once a year. And um, then at the end of YU, um, I uh, got married, went to the Gruskolo, finished my smicha both at YU and in Israel and Gruskolo. Came to Boca Raton. I was not sure what I wanted to do at the time. And I knew I wanted to continue to learn. And the community kolal here in Boca Raton at the time enabled me to continue learning, but also begin to experience, experiment, get active in Jewish communal life. I thought I was on the track towards chinuch. I thought I was going to go into education. I wanted to be a high school rebbe, maybe post high school in some capacity. Um, but my wife, my wife, Yecheved, really, I owe her everything, but this included, or maybe towards the top, 
uh, with my children is the fact that she redirected me towards Rabbana. She thought that I would be better um, fulfilled, satisfied, make a bigger difference in that world, in that arena. And every time I have the opportunity to speak to teenage children, I am beyond grateful to her for that sagacious advice. She was more than right. I have beyond admiration for our machanchem out there. Kids are beautiful. They're tremendous. They're wonderful. They're delicious, but they're hard. When I give a shir, when I teach a class, when I would give a seminar, when I record a podcast, the people who listen want to be there. They're opting in. They're choosing. They're an audience who, who are excited to be present as opposed to those who have to be there because it's mandated and it's much harder to keep their attention and hold them accountable. So it was definitely the right decision. She pointed me in this direction. And uh, then after two and a half years in the kolal here, Rabbi Fass, who was the assistant rabbi at the time, left to start Nefesh B'Nefesh, and he's changing the world. Rabbi Fass is just one of the absolute heroes of history, changing the world with Nefesh B'Nefesh. And I was in that capacity for two and a half years. And then Rabbi Brander left. He went to go to YU, and I became the rabbi at the Boca Raton Synagogue, took over in 2005. And uh, the rest is history. I've been having fun here ever since. Love what I do. No two days, no two minutes are the same. Rabbanus is the greatest, most gratifying, satisfying, sometimes challenging job in the world. And uh, I feel honored and privileged and blessed every single day. I'm grateful to Hashem. Incredible. Wow. That was a great rundown. Um Probably took a couple decades into two minutes, but that was great. Uh, and Community Colas, nice plug for Community Colas. We're fans. Community Colas are game-changing. Our community absolutely was transformed by our community kolel because the members of the kolel, first of all, they enriched the kolel just through learning and through teaching and through programs, but it also seeded the community. In our infancy and adolescence, the rebbeim, the machanchim, the the men and women role models of the community were graduates of the kolel. I won't take the time now, but I could give you the rundown, the different institutions here that were seeded by the kolel members who came in that capacity. So even if a kolel member graduates and goes somewhere else or does something else, their time in the kolel is valuable, but especially as a way to seed a community, it's it's absolutely valuable. It transformed our community. I'm sure you're doing that as well. Try. Uh, and you've had Rev, uh, Rev Schachter come visit your town. He's been a guest on our program as well. Oh, wow. um, we have to work on bringing him to Columbus, but uh, we'll get there, Mirza Shab. Um, so you mentioned how you followed um, different Rabbanim who were in the shul before you that moved on to Nefesh Benefesh and Rabbi Brander moving on, etc. How do you see your role following um, the, the rabbis before you? Sometimes people come in, let's say they, whether it's a company or it's a shul, like they come in, like I'm a change agent. I'm going to shake things up. I'm going to, you know, you know, rebrand or everything or no, I'm, I'm not really um, trying to fill their shoes. I'm trying to go on their shoulders. I'm trying to like pick up. How do you see yourself following these rabbis? Yeah, it's a great metaphor. I love that. Well done slipping that in there. Definitely going on shoulders, not filling shoes. We each wear our own shoes and we each have our own footsteps. We each on our own path. We each on our own journey. And you can continue the metaphor as far as you want to take it. But I think it's a mistake when people try to compete or compare or fill shoes. Uh, last week, you and I saw each other at the yeah. wonderful Art Scroll event, and Rabbi Zlatowicz made that point when his father, Mayor Zlatowicz, who was a legendary figure of history, left this world. Many wished him luck in filling his father's shoes, and it was Jay Schottenstein who gave him that incredible advice the night his father left this world, that he would wear his own shoes and find his own shoes and walk his own path, not try to fill someone else's. So I definitely wasn't trying to do that. Um I think that, you know, going back, now this goes back a little while, 
But I remember trying to get a lot of advice. I'm a big believer in Marbe Eitza, Marbe Tfuna. The more people you speak to who can give advice, the greater the wisdom you'll have. So a lot of people, you know, they want to seem like they have it all together. They don't need help. They don't need advice. They want to seem like they're confident and like they're capable and competent. So therefore they, they can just go at it alone. But I think it's a big mistake. First of all, there are a lot of really wise people out there with a lot of life experience and a lot of expertise. And the more that you ask for advice, defer for advice, listen to advice, the smarter that you become because you're combining all their learning from their educational learning to their real life learning. <clears throat> you also win them over as friends because who doesn't like for someone to ask them for advice? So when you ask someone for advice and you and you listen and you learn from it, you've won a fan, you've won a friend, you've won a partner in whatever you're doing or you're trying to create in Im- implementing their advice and your, and your bigger agenda. So I asked and spoke to and listened to a lot of people and and one of the things that I tried to do at the time, my predecessor, who was a visionary and amazing and really built the foundation of the community, but as you're building and growing institutions, um, you're, you're singularly focused on that. And I tried to, and it's ironic I'm speaking about this now because um, it definitely is a challenge at this stage of the size of our community and even my career, but I really was focused on the individual, not just the institutions and not just growing, but really ensuring that the people, the individual, the warmth, the needs, the personal connection... Um, was something that that I wanted to make my mark or that's the way I wanted to begin my time here. And I was really focused on that. And I, I think I still am. I hope I still am. And I, I still want to be. It's much more challenging. We're up to a thousand families in our in our shul, in our community, and, and it's active and it's big. And Shabbos morning, it's eight minyanim and, and each minion is community within community. And it's more challenging. We have an amazing team who help do that. And Corona was incredibly challenging in that. But that was uh, something that I was, that I cared about. And the other thing was, um, to really continue that vision um, and to put it on steroids and supersize it of not putting people in a box, of not making them conform, of not having one locked in hashkafa, one profile of what a BRS member looks like, but to say this is not so much a melting pot, but it's a it's a community of communities all united under one umbrella, one campus, one group of Rabbanim, one 501c3, one shul dinner, and and one sense of we are a community made up of different parts. And a lot of communities you see that shuls or the rabbanim, you know, they're very singular. They're very, they're very, they, they connect with one hashkafa or one institution, one yeshiva they came from. You see this a lot in the, in the drushes they give, right? So often you'll hear Chabad rabbanim who won't quote anyone outside of Labavitch. You'll hear why he won't quote anyone out of the Rav. Chabad Chaim, everything's the Rosh Hashiva of Hanach. And, and to me, there's an incredibly rich tapestry of Torah. And I don't, while I'm proud of my connection with primarily a YU world, but also several of the so-called hashkafas, I don't, I don't belong to, I'm not owned by, and I don't own any one of them. I think we're complex, we're rich, we draw the best of, and we try to represent and, and promote and preach the best of. And I think that's something that we've tried very hard to do is to create an environment, which is a place of aliyah, a place of growth, a place of, of progress, a place that wherever you are on your journey, from beginner, intermediate, advanced men and women, young and old, uh, you'll find something. You'll find a learning opportunity. You'll find a social program. You'll find advocacy. You'll find us tackling difficult topics. And you know, now we're very focused on mental health issues and our mental health podcast. We began a program we just had on on addiction. So you know, we're not afraid whether it's fighting for Agunas or standing up for Israel and Israel Night or being at the front lines of Kirov and caring about the total Jewish community or trying to be sensitive to mental health challenges of our day. But that's part of the vision. I would say those are the two visions of the community is to, number one, be a a big place 
It's not making people conform. We're not looking for uniformity. We're looking for unity. And we appreciate and recognize and value the diversity that's in it. And, and I've spoken way too long, but I could tell you about the eight minyanam on a Shabbos morning where a person doesn't have to fit into a box. Find the place that fits you or be somebody who travels in between. Have a Jewish passport and travel in between those experiences and stamp that passport. Maybe you have, the passport has a nationality. You live in one of those hashkafas. You live in one of the minyanam. You feel most at home or comfortable in one yeshiva, but your passport has a lot of stamps to it and you're willing to travel with it. And you could see the world. My friend David Lichtenstein made that, gave that mushal about a passport. Um, when I had him on, or he had me on, I don't remember which one, and that wasn't a guest flex. On, but, guest over here as well. Good. So he, I don't know if he made the same point here. He told the story about his driver who couldn't take his son to Canada because he didn't have a passport. He said, you're a retired policeman. You're 60 selling years old, and you don't own a passport? Like like Nebuch, you haven't really lived. You haven't seen. You haven't experienced. You haven't toured. Mm-hmm. And he offered that as a mushal for Ruchnius. Like Nebuch, we're not saying that you have to have a passport when you're 13 years old, that you're bar mitzvah, that you've explored the richness of multiple hashkafas. But to be a certain age and stage of life, and even if, again, your passport reflects a certain nationality, a home base, but you don't have a passport, meaning you don't even have a, a desire to travel, and it's not stamped, you haven't seen parts of the total world, you haven't opened up a Ravitcha Meyer, and a Rav Henach, and a Tanya, and Red Rav Soloveitchik, and studied Reb Chaim, and seen Reb Pincus, and studied uh, Reb Dessler, and gone through whatever the million and one other examples are to explore as Fasemes and to, and to understand and to see. And again, you don't have to you don't have to migrate and move your permanent home, but at least go visit and tour and create an album of the experience of what you got from being in those places. That's something that we try to do on a regular basis in an environment of growth and progress. So. You would say diversity is really the word that might sum all this up. Is that in your mission statement? That's a very nice view. It is a layup in our mission statement, yes. Our mission statement is our tagline and our logo. It's also one of the things I, I tried to do early on that I think I tried to bring to my Rabbanus. Um, not better, but maybe different than some, is I, I don't come from a family of Rabbanim. My father's an executive in biotech world. I have a brother who's a doctor who's also in Chinuch, and I have a brother-in-law who's a lawyer, and, and my grandparents, nobody was in Rabbanus. I don't come from a long line of Rabbanim. Um, and so I have a business itch. I would love entrepreneurship, vision, business, strategy, branding, marketing, all of that. I've read books. I've studied. I'm, I'm curious. I've never actually started to run a business, but there's that itch inside me and this belief, which hopefully I'll never have to find out if it's true, that if I did go into business, I would be successful. But I've tried to bring that professionalism and strategic thinking and execution and management to, to shul life and to Jewish communal life and to trying to build and create and care. So one of the things I did was we need a brand. What's our logo? What's our brand? When people hear or think BRS, the BRS community, what does that emotionally elicit? When they think the Kolel, what do they think of immediately? Because that brand is what's going to open doors. It's going to raise funds. It's going to win friends. You need to have a brand. So our brand and our logo, we worked hard on it. Though it might sound simple now is valuing diversity, celebrating unity. And it's all shtickle on the brand, on the logo, on the on the slogan, because we value diversity. You know, some people will talk about tolerating diversity. And there's a beautiful Rav Yechiel, um, Rav, uh, no, Rav Weinberg, the Sude Eish, writes that um, diversity, Klaistral is not something you ever tolerate. You tolerate a bad rash. You tolerate slow Wi-Fi. You don't tolerate a fellow Yid. You love a fellow Jew. You don't tolerate fellow Jews. So we don't tolerate diversity. 
right? There are communities where I'll hear from people, you know, there's a lot of different types of Jews who live around here and we're okay with that. The beauty of our community is that we're fine with that. We'll shop in the same stores or eat in the same restaurants and that's okay with us. That's a very low bar to me, a very low bar. You don't want to tolerate, you want to, you want to value diversity. My, my children grew up and are growing up in a community where they are comfortable and familiar with Chabad Menhagim and, and Karlbach and Nusach Svard and, um, and non from people and, and the Svardim are, are rich, Eduta Mizrach, Minyan community within our community and, and so much more. And I think you're so much richer when you don't just tolerate diversity, you value it. The problem with diversity is it also, it often leads to divisiveness. Uh, you took my next question. Yeah. Oh, so diversity often leads to divisiveness. That's why the second half of our slogan, valuing diversity, celebrating unity, because you don't want diversity to the extent that you're divided. You want diversity that is unified, celebrating unity. We don't celebrate uniformity. We celebrate unity. And, and Rav Steinsaltz, I've shared this, but I was once with Rav Steinsaltz. He asked me what's special about your community. I gave him this little spiel, our elevator pitch. And I remember he was making himself a cup of coffee and he looked up at me and he said, if you have unity, obviously you have diversity. If you didn't have diversity, you wouldn't have unity. You'd have uniformity, right? That was what Steinsaltz was brilliant, brilliant. So he understood if you have unity, it's because you have to have diversity. Because if you didn't have diversity, you wouldn't have unity, you'd have uniformity. So our goal is that we have these eight minyanim, but we have one Shabbos, Shuvah, Shabbos, Drasha. Simchas Torah, we come together and we celebrate. One Shul dinner with representation from the multiple components of community and community within community. But oh, the umbrella is this value of Tzibor, Kihila, community that has a heartbeat and a rhythm, and that's a breathing, living um, organism in its own right, the notion of community that celebrates together and mourns together and that challenges itself together and uh, experiences life's challenges together. And that's something that we're trying to create. Okay. So I have a follow-up on diversity and, you know, really that's kind of the, not kind of is the mission of Kolot is the Hebrew word for voices. Cause we want many, many different voices, whether it's Rabbanim or businessmen or politicians or doctors or mental health professionals, we need a lot of different voices. So that's very important on this uh, program. Why did you choose why Kolot, not Kolos? Uh, it's a good question because the intro to our song is Yaakov Shreki singing. I just thought Beautiful. it sounded better. And also, uh, it's more friendly for secular um, Jews, but we could change it to Kolos if we need. No, I'm not if suggesting we, that you do. I'm, we I'm need, just curious. You know, if you need to change your name, change your mazel, I don't know. If, if our if our views go down, we know where to start. But uh, no, it's a great it's a great name. I just I only say it, and I don't mean to be interrupting you on your podcast, but I only because I think it's interesting. The audience probably doesn't appreciate how much time and energy and thought went into your decision, whether to call it Kolot or Kolos, and different audiences and sensitivities, and that's a branding issue, right? Because yeah. if you were trying to win over a certain audience, Kolot wouldn't do it. Whereas a different audience, Kolos wouldn't do it. So it's an interesting question. Anyway, sorry, back to, back to your being the host. Well, I, yeah, I have contemplated on it. And I actually, I still go back and forth, but that's part of, uh, it's part of life. My question about diversity is, okay, so I'll tell you, last season of Kolot, we had Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson, a guest on your program as well. And he talked about his father in the Algamainer Journal, and he wouldn't uh, get into the cancel uh, business of, you know, he would allow different, uh, a lot of different views, and some of which that may have cost him some sales. Uh, you know, he could have done better, but he wanted a lot of different views. And Robbie Jacobson was talking about the beauty of the diversity and the rainbow, the different colors. And I, and I cut him off right there. I said, I love diversity. You mentioned rainbow, I think the month of June. So my question to you is, 
How do you have diversity in the context of Torah values? You got to have red lines somewhere. So how sure. do you fix that with diversity? I, thank God we have a Torah Kadosha. We have a Torah Sashem, a Torah Zemes. Thank God we have a Torah, which helps give us boundaries. Now, those boundaries are not clearly delineated on every different topic. So we have the, we have Das Torah, or we have, you know, I don't know that we subscribe to that in the classic sense of Das Torah, but meaning we have Torah personalities who we believe are so well-versed, literate experts in Torah that they can finish Hashem's sentence the same way a loving couple, husband and wife. So some of the boundaries are obvious and clear. They're the Torah's explicit boundaries, and we have to honor them, though we are sensitive and loving and warm and caring and supportive, but the boundaries are boundaries and we can't cross them. Other times it's unclear what the boundary is. Other times you're flirting with the boundary. Other times you're flirting with the edge of the cliff and you're wondering, am I going over it? So you might have such a diverse program that might have such a speaker that will attract the attention and criticism of people who think you went over the boundary. How dare you have hosted such and such or partner with so-and-so? How dare you? So I think it's important. This is a core value of mine and, and try to make it a practice of mine that when when there's a question, either because internally I think it's questionable or because you have to be blessed with a wonderful partner, Rebitson, who might challenge you and say, are you sure that's a good idea? Have you thought about that? Have you consulted about that? Or you have critics. You have critics who come to you privately or publicly and call you out and say, that's wrong. So are you willing to be humble enough to go to somebody bigger than you and say, hey, set me straight. Am I pushing the boundary? Good idea, bad idea. Do I need to stop here? And there have been times that there have been an idea, not many, because I, I think intuitively we want to stay within the boundaries. But there have been times people have said, yeah, that's pushing it too far. That's a bad idea. Other times people say, you know, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that, but you may attract some criticism and negative attention. You may not want to do it, even though technically there's nothing wrong with it. And and other times, but but I don't think, or I know, I would never run a program, host a program, participate in a program if if the Rebbeim that I cherish their their opinion told me bad idea. So is that a little bit of like a, a litmus test? Like what would my Rebbe think of the following? Not only what would he think, sometimes I call and ask what they think, right? You know, I, we, we've hosted, I, it's, not a, it's not a secret, but we, we had a night for Israel last year and we previously hosted one and partnered in a way that um, benefited Israel tremendously. I was told by people who measure and care about these things and that it matters what we did, the advocacy and the, and speaking out and winning friends. Um, but not everybody thought that the way the person we partnered with, the way we did it was right. So I called my rebbeim, not just Rav Shechter. I called Gedola Yisrael. And I said, just, just stop me. Just tell me if I'm wrong. Tell me if I can't do this. Um, we've, we've fought cases of Aguna with rallies where someone said, how dare you? You can't. And, and we've spoken to Gedola Yisrael and said, you know, we're not going to make a move. Not going to take a public stand on this. And again, Rav Shechter is one of my rebbeim, but other rebbeim from other worlds that, that maybe everyone universally would, would say are, are among the Gedola Yisrael because I, I wouldn't, in the end of the day, I'm trying to be a Ben Torah. And so I, I know what I know. I know what I don't know, which is a whole lot more of what I do know. And I trust the people who, who are our post game in every area to guide where those boundaries should go. Do people sometimes say like, did you ask a rabbi before you did this? And like, it's really not their business to be asking you that, but like, how do you deal with that other side where people are perhaps giving pushback? Like your job's stressful enough as it is now and you have to deal with these things. So how, like, tell yeah. us how you navigate. I have no problem. Listen, again, there's, I am open to and welcome constructive criticism. Uh, nobody's perfect. And I have many, many imperfections and we could record a whole of the podcast on that. I have many imperfections. So I'm, I'm open and eager and we learn. And so much of the growth of our community, 
or because of changes or programs or ideas that we pursued because someone stepped up and said, hey, this is missing or that's not right or I was treated in this way. And I said, well, great, let's fix that. Let's make that better. Or Rabbi, you blew it because small, I'll give you a tiny example, small things. When I first started as a rabbi and I do a funeral and I would talk about now we're going to shovel the dirt. So a retired rabbi who was at one of the funerals I officiated came over to me and said, Rabbi, we call it earth, not dirt. Right? So I'm, I'm now a rabbi for 23 years. So in 23 years, every Leviah, I talk about shoveling the earth because earth is a so much more appropriate word. And you don't throw dirt on a loved one. You replace the earth on them. So again, you could like be defensive and dirt earth. What's the difference? And I'm a Davka call dirt the rest of my career. Or you could be like, wow, what a great point. Because, you know, he came over gently. He whispered. He was saying it so that I would improve and be better and help families not feel dirt was thrown on their loved one. Absolutely. I, I could give you literally off the top of my head, 10 more examples like that, that someone said to me, Rabbi, you know, that Russia, you formulated it in that way. That wasn't so sensitive. You said this. And it, great. I want to learn. That's great. That's, thank you. That's, that's fine. You know, it's much more complicated when someone gives criticism that's justified, but in a very unjustified way. Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. The Pasuk says, Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdof, and, and the Medrash Chazal say, Tzedek, Bit, Tzedek, Tirdof. It's not just that you have to pursue justice. You have to pursue justice with justice. So I always say there's there's the message, there's the messaging, and there's the messenger. So sometimes the message is, is a fair message, but the messenger is miserable and the messaging is terrible. That's when it's the hardest to accept the message. Sometimes the messenger is fantastic, the messenger is fair, Messaging is fair, but the message is not. I disagree. It's not. That's not a a criticism. That's that's legitimate. So there's three components of it, and you always have to. You get that scathing email. The person sends you the text. The person unloads on you in person, and you have to try to separate out and say, "Didn't love that messaging. I don't think that was so fair. Don't necessarily even love the messenger as a person. Either they're a hypocrite or they have an axe to grinder. But let's look at them. Maybe the message is fair anyway. Maybe what they have is something I could grow from anyway. So I think we got to be open to that to that criticism and 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 I welcome it. So if someone says to me, um, you know, this seems somewhat controversial, and Rabbi, I'm not doubting you, you're my post, like I ask you Shilas, but something like this, did it get kicked up to a to a bigger person, a higher place? Did you ask anyone? I welcome that. And I welcome the opportunity to say yes, because I think that's modeling that I don't have all the answers. I think that's modeling that your rabbi needs a Rebbe. Your Rebbe needs a Rebbe. What happens when you get to the top of the line? So they also had Rebbeim. They're not longer along the living. So they continue to drink from their Torah, from their memory, and from their Svarim, and from their Mesorah. But everyone needs a Rebbe. Every Rebbe needs a Rebbe. So if I could model that, yes, in fact, I did call someone. And sometimes I can share who it was, and other times they don't want it known, which is a sad old separate topic. Not because they don't stand by their Psak, but they don't want to be the recipient and target of the venom that was coming at me, and I'm happy to take the bullet for them. But I spoke to multiple big postkim, let's say about that controversial program, and they were all fine with it. I wouldn't have done it if they weren't. One who, of them, who, who two was of the their speaker? sons attended. Who was the speaker? What was the controversial program? Yeah, I, by the way, I heard that I heard about this. Shai Shechter came in for the event, but uh, yeah, who was the speaker? Yeah, Shai and Yami came in. It was I didn't ask them to. It surprised me. It was I, I still am not have not expressed properly my appreciation to them for the statement it made that they did. Um, you know, there, there's a. There's a pastor in South Florida who runs a network and, and communicates to hundreds of thousands of evangelicals who love Israel. Love Israel. I wish Jews loved Israel like they love Israel. Yeah, now, I'll, why I'll do, say that. Yeah, why do they love Israel and what's their agenda of loving Israel? This is an old question, an old uh, discussion. And, and I've written about and I've given evidence, whether it's the Kloisenberger Rebbe currently, 
who took an enormous donation from evangelicals in building uh, recently and expanding the hospital, Mina Yeshua, in, in Netanya, or whether it's uh, the from community of Houston that has partnered with the Hagi and the millions of dollars of yeshivas, how many yeshivas have taken money from evangelicals directly or indirectly. I don't need to defend myself through those other examples, but you know, we did not proselytize. And um, in fact, the event we, we partnered with the Simon Wiesenthal center and an expert at the Simon Wiesenthal center who himself has worked in interfaith for decades and decades and vetted this pastor. Is he evangelical? Is he um, proselytizing? Is he looking at convert Jews? Is he missionizing? And the answer unequivocally was no, and there's no danger, and there's no threat, and there's no history, and that's not a concern. So again, I, I did my homework. You know, I, I spoke to to Rabbi Adlerstein, who's a Ben Torah, a serious Ben Torah, a Talmachacham, respected, works in this field, who had no problem with it, who spoke at the event via video, who Simon Wiesenthal partnered with us. You know, the person who tried to make a tumult out of it had an axe to grind about other things, and I was an easy target for it. And uh, and so they did, including horrific death threats and, and abuse of my children, which is a separate story. Um, but Baruch Hashem, there were a thousand people there, Jews and non-Jews, standing up for Israel, Ambassador David Friedman. And uh, we recognized, showed appreciation to our congressman at the time, Ted Deutsch, and Ben Shapiro was there and spoke. And... Governor Ron DeSantis, now our governor again. So if you ask me, do we regret the event? Adarabah, I think the event made made a statement and 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 lit a fire under non-Jews to care about Israel and to advocate for Israel. So, you know, whether it was Rav Shechter who was okay with it and evidenced, I think, by his two sons attending, or whether it was other other great poskim of our door who told me, I wouldn't do it. And by the way, this is a very important point. I, I'm not telling every rabbi they should host a program like this. I'm not, I'm not telling everybody this is what you need to do, should do. I'm not prescribing it for anyone else. I'm just asking you that if I went through the proper channels, either trust me implicitly because you know me and the type of person I am in the Bento I strive to be, or if you don't, and that's okay, I sometimes don't either, then trust that I asked the right postkim and rebeim and, and, and went through the process that was supposed to before hosting something like this. So it was a much of... Much ado about nothing. It sounds transparency is the best policy. That's what it uh, sounds like. And uh, Simon Wiesenthal, Rabbi Marvin Heyer has been a past guest and he's phenomenal. Great stories. Rabbi Mayer may uh, help with that. Um, so you talk about bringing the CEO mentality to your Rabbanus, to the rabbinate. And at the end of the day, you are a 501c3. You are a not-for-profit um, that has a little bit of a mission that, has a meaning to it. It's supposed to be more um, about the connections, relationships, both, you know, between man and man, man and God, et cetera. Do you feel that bringing the CEO mentality sometimes could compromise the, what, you know, what you're trying to do or to the contrary? No, it makes you more efficient and, and deliver more goods, so to speak. Which one would you say? It's a great, great question. I think that if you have a CEO mentality, a business mentality, and it makes you cold and callous and business-like and only about money and bottom line profit, P&L, then, then it's a terrible, terrible thing. But if the reason you bring that mentality is to be more productive, more efficient, you bring that mentality so you could serve people better, and it's all about the people, then it's critically important. I don't believe that it's legitimate. I don't think there's an excuse not to be. I think that one of the challenges we have is too many institutions are way too Hamish. And when you're Hamish and life is a Hasidic Shemalav Malka, you're wasting funds, you're not serving people, you're acting irresponsibly, you're not effectively communicating or transmitting the message. I, so I think we have a responsibility. Now, again, there's a, there's a gvul. 
right? If you're too business-like and you're consumed by your being business-like, then you're going to lose, lose the, the warmth and the, the people. So you got to find the balance between the two. Okay, definitely so. And I also want to um, ask you, as we go behind your BIMA, how did Behind the BIMA get started? Behind the BIMA got started as, um, it wasn't a joke, but it was like, it was a fun, we were all shut down and locked down during Corona. We pivoted to give classes in Shiram online. Turned out that Corona was terrible and miserable for me. That was a wonderful gift as an, another channel to be able to to share and teach in the world. And But all of our interactions, we weren't even davening. I mean, it's, it's hard to remember, though it wasn't long ago. We were almost literally locked down in our homes. We right. weren't even having a minion in a driveway. I'll never forget the first minion in a driveway when the experts decided we could. We, you know, we, we, in neighborhoods, we divided up and we marked, we measured six feet and marked with tape on the driveway X's where you could stand. Don't leave that place with a mask. You could drop dead. It's really wild when you look back at it and think about it. So we were locked down on Kedekach. We weren't even yet doing that. So when you read a Zoom, you connected with people through your class, but the banter and the schmoozing and the fun and the laughter and the human side of Yiddishkeit was missing, was lacking. There's a famous story. I think it's the Satmar Rebbe who would give a Gemara shir after the, after the war. And, um, you know, with Shmuz always the beginning of shir before they open up the Gemaras to dive in. It was once criticized, Rebbe, it's Bittal Torah. You're wasting time. You're not studying Torah. How could you have this Shmuz, this casual conversation? Got to dive in. And he said, you'll notice every Mesechta, every Gemara begins on Daf Beis because the Shmuzing is Daf Aleph. That's except for, your, except for your Shalmi, but okay, fine. Right, okay. The Shmuz is, okay, we're still, ba- I, with all due respect, and Mazel Tov, and it's amazing, we started a Yerushalmi Yomi Shir at our shul. I told uh, Gedai Zlatowitz, thanks to that event you and I were at, but we're still, ba- we're still to learn the Bavli. So, so Daf Aleph, <laughs> Daf Aleph is just, is Shmuz. So we were missing the Daf Aleph of life, yeah. right? Everything that, every interaction was from Daf Beis and beyond. We were missing the Daf Aleph. So we started by the Bima. Rabbi Moskowitz, Rabbi Rodi, and I were three incredibly close friends and colleagues. And we just, let's laugh. Let's have banter. People can write in. People can. We started out on Zoom. So you saw each other. You could write in. You could schmooze. We could talk about the policies, the decisions, how we've reached where we are, how we're experiencing what we're experiencing together. And then we had our first guest, which was a cousin of my wife, who was in a coma for 40 days from Corona, a young, young man. And uh, through miracles, Baruch Hashem, had come out of that coma and, and he's still hearing loss in one ear. It's long-term impact, but Baruch Hashem, Hashem's miracles. And we just had him on because he was like a real person, a real profile. Let's talk to him. And the next week, like, oh, who should we have this week? Let's have another guest because that made it fun. And fast forward now, we've done Behind the Bima. I don't know what you have, 110 episodes, 105 episodes. And, um, and we have fun with it. You know, we have a different guest each week and we try to just draw inspiration a lot, a lot like what you're doing and bring that conversation. Um, what makes it maybe a little bit different is that it's not just re- recorded and published, but we we do it live. Um, at least the banter part is live on Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. And it's not just publishing the interview and a conversation. And, and maybe people, some people skip right to the interview. They don't really care to hear us schmooze. Other people say, that's my favorite part. You don't even need a guest. Just be real. And so we do, we schmooze a little bit to open up the show. And then we have our interview, our guest. Afterwards, we reflect on that conversation with the guest. And uh, we've had a lot of fun with it. And, you know, the good news is neither you nor I make our living from this. And we're not trying to become influencers or superstars, celebrities. And so if we add value, it's fun and it's great. And if we miss a week or we can't do it, 
or if it ever ended, our life would go on. Right. And this is important. This is important. If anyone ever said to me, I've got one hour. Should I listen to the Parsha Shir you give or the Amunah Shir you give or the Siddur Snippets you give or the Term Fighting to Erev Shabbos you give, you give, whatever you, should I listen to a Shir you give or behind the Bima? 101 out of 100 times, my answer would be one of the Shirim. 101 out of 100 times. So, you know, it, I know it has its place and I know it's fun. And in the meantime, we're enjoying it. No, exactly. And, and it's a, and it's a kosher thing outlet, so to speak. And it's a lot better than other things. So, and, and you'll learn from it hopefully as well. Um, in I want beginning when, when we started it and we were all locked down and people were desperate to connect. So the live part of it, many hundreds came out. It was like a big thing each week live. Now everyone has a life and they're out and about. And so the live streaming part of it is much, much less. Um, and people listen to it when they can get to it, if they want to, or if it's a week or if they have a guest that they want to hear. So that part of it has really radically changed since it began and since it started with Corona. You started something recent out of the shadows um, for, you know, mental health uh, awareness. Um, how did that come about? And if you don't mind me asking, um, if you had, you know, I guess some level of, you know, your family having the difficulty of doing something controversial, did that have what to do with going out of the shadows and talk about that? Nothing to do with it. I, I'm very, very lucky that my family roll with the punches and ride this wave with me and we have a lot of fun about it. And, you know, we, we don't feel threatened by it. And, um, you know, my wife even has an amazing sheet about it, whether it was that or, or any public person as other trolls or haters. And, and my wife's lately, her opinion about it is, you know, Baruch Hashem, we feel very, very blessed in our lives in so many ways, which I want to enumerate now because I don't want to welcome an Ayanhara. And and you can feel sometimes vulnerable, like there's so much bracha. It's overwhelming how much bracha. And we're so undeserving of the bracha. So her feeling is if we have to suffer at all, like the Yisurim, that's it. The busyness, the attack, the whatever. Baruch Hashem, bring it on. Keep it going. It's good. It's good. Let it be that. Let it be that and not a real a real Nisayan, a real test, a real challenge, a real tragedy. And I think that's a great outlook that she has. So it enables us to even look at it or the people who do it and say, Baruch Hashem for you. Thank you. Thank you for the fact that this is hopefully it and it doesn't have to come to us in some other in some other way. So now nah, it wasn't a reaction to that whatsoever. There are other issues in the community. I think um, the explosion of anxiety, depression, of OCD, um, mental health challenges like bipolar schizophrenia there are there are no shortages of the diagnoses that any community and a large community will have um a significant presence of a meaningful presence of and it's not being addressed and it's not being addressed in a supportive nature to intervene for those struggling with it but what i came to learn a friend of mine said to me is it's also not being addressed we wait for a mental illness and then react instead of teaching and promoting mental health and we're living in a time that there's an assault on our mental health. We are in the most prosperous generation of all time, and we are the most unhappy generation of all time. And that should not go together. We are the most prosperous, blessed, materially generation ever, technology, and yet we're the most unhappy, miserable generation ever. So what gives? What's going on? What's happening? And how do we tackle it instead of not having to wait? And how do we get people out of the shadows? the level of stigma and the level of shame and the level of Shanda that drives so much of the mental challenges and addiction challenges and all the corollaries of it, if we could erase and remove the stigma and the shame and have conversation and not normalize it, that we glorify it or romanticize it, but normalize it that people don't have to feel ashamed. Nobody has to try to keep up or compete or compare or, or try to um, pretend like their life is perfect when nobody has a perfect life. 
it's okay not to be okay. And let's figure that out together. And that's the way Hashem made us. And Hashem gave us resources for it. And that's it. So there were some incidents that happened in our community, like in any other um, significant breakdown of mental health issues or public events or things that happened. And part of the response to it is, you know, let's let's deal with it. I had, In one week, there was a significant event, a tragic event that happened as a result of, of mental illness. And then there were two phone calls, two experiences I had of young people. Um, one was suicidal and the other, another crisis. I just said, we, we got to do something. So we actually had a meeting. We convened a bunch of people. We put our heads together. We came up with a strategy of several things. We're still rolling it out. We haven't done all of them, but one of them was was a podcast. And we've done two episodes. We're, we're getting ready to put out our third. Uh, we don't do it every week. I don't have that time and, and it would be a little too intense and heavy. But what we're trying to do with it is to interview people who are courageous enough to share their own management struggle of that issue. So when we did the anxiety episode, we had amazing Jessica and Eitan, a man and a woman, a married woman in the five towns with five kids, runs a gemach out of her home and could be anyone you know, and a, a graduate of Yeshiva University who lives in the Upper West Side, who is a, who is a wonderful career in accounting, could be anyone you know. And, but the two of them were courageous enough to share about their challenges with anxiety, how they navigate it, how they manage it, how they live with it. And we interviewed an amazing doctor who founded a center for anxiety as a professor at Harvard from men who talked about where do you see anxiety? How do you manage anxiety? What is anxiety all about? And, and the feedback was enormous. Whether it's people who feel validated, so grateful to know there's other people like me, or whether it's people who say, thank you for giving us a voice. Other people need to know what we go through. Or people who say, I picked up real skills from what they spoke about. It helps me manage my anxiety. It's it's out there. And um, that's really, really gratifying. And again, you know, what's what's not, not sitting in judgment of anybody else, but I think it's true for most, hopefully, of, of the Jewish podcasts out there. But we're just trying to be of service and add value. And and I don't make one penny from this. There's no income from it. Um, on the Out of the shadows, there's no marketing of it. Even behind the BMO, when someone sponsors it, it doesn't even barely... It covers quite, it goes to the shul. It helps provide what our shul provides, teaching Torah. I don't, I don't make any money. I don't buy dinner from it. I don't, nothing. So, um, so it's just gratifying that it's not, we're not trying to compare, compete with numbers. No marketing goes into it. I haven't, haven't spent, I'm behind the bima. We have never spent one penny. We, I, I tell my community, we have the greatest scholar in residence program in the history of any shul without having spent one penny from having had Gedola Yisrael and Yudra Bunim and incredible female role models to having had billionaire sports team owners, Bob Kraft and um, and the owner of the Minnesota Vikings as well, to um, Wolf, Jeff, Wolf, uh, not Jeff, uh, Wolf, um, I'm blanking on his name, and there's so much that he has to say, and the former Omar Timberland, to the Prime Minister of Israel, Natalie Bennett, to Cheryl Sandberg, to Mariano Rivera, to, and we've never spent one penny. If a guest wants money, we're just not interested. We've never spent one penny on one guest. You had to pay me $100,000 to come on this podcast. Just joking. <laughs> just joking. But but we've never spent one penny on marketing or on YouTube advertising. That might change. Maybe the message is so worth it that it's worth investing in. I'm not promising that forever. But but until now, it's all been organic growth. And, and that's very um, that's very validating. I was having a conversation with uh, Tzvi Gluck from Amudim about this. And, and he joked, you know, I guess somewhat jokingly said, that, you know, the best thing that came out of COVID is that uh, people are less hesitant to talk about mental health. Um, as a rabbi, as a rav, as so many people, did you, uh, everyone saw a rise in mental health over COVID, but did it kind of like uh, 
just make more uh, people more comfortable talking about it in the sense that it was already there? Or do you think that, no, in the last year or two, it was a significant spike? And w- what do you think this is all about? I think the data shows there's a significant spike. Um, I think there's a lot of articles, a lot of data about that. But even before Corona, it was already enormously on the rise. And the research shows, and interesting, this is research done by, done by Meta and Instagram, Facebook, social media, who have branches that do research, are there yeah. ones that came to their own conclusion that they're destroying the world. Right. Which I've told our local schools, yeshivas, we should leverage that. Because until now, when you talk about managing children and adult use of social media, you, you sound like you're a frummy. You sound like you're, you know, but it's not a from, it's not a religious issue. It's a mental health issue. Absolutely. It correlates. The more you're trying to live other people's lives instead of your own, or you're competing and comparing, or you have FOMO, or you're mindlessly and numbingly scrolling and the endorphin release, the dopamine release from, from waiting for likes and retweets and forwards, all of that absolutely contributes to mental health. And again, this is not me. It's not conjecture at this point. It's, it's countless pieces of research that all confirms the same, the same thesis that technology with all of its bracha and gifts, and I utilize it and you utilize it, and we're utilizing it together right now with all of its brachas and gifts. Technology also is enormously dangerous and harmful, and it needs to be managed. It needs to be managed like it's a, like it's a, um, a risky, a dangerous substance. Same way that alcohol or drugs are legalized and regulated and managed. So it needs to be managed. Screen time, use, what we're looking at, how we use it, what we do with it. No one listening should believe me. Go, ironically, Google it, and you will read the research and see the data, and you'll see these conclusions. It's not me. So before corona, it's easy to attribute it to corona, but you'll see that before corona, there's already this huge spike of of anxiety, and anxiety takes so many different forms, but all the different ways that anxiety expresses itself were before corona. Before Corona, we're already beginning to spike. You want the biggest evidence of the dangers of these platforms is the fact that the inventors and engineers of them don't use them and won't let them in their home. Right. Steve Jobs famously, Bill Gates, others, they knew how to regulate it because they were designing something that would give us a dopamine release that would become addictive in nature, that would absolutely become they they knew what they were designing. So they, for themselves and for their family and in their homes, you know, might as well look at like early Haredim on this stuff. But the truth is now we realize it's not a religious concern. It's a mental health concern. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you've seen people do uh, people in a really bad state that were like, you know, you mentioned he had someone who was suicidal. Have you seen people bounce back well and get back on track, do well, thrive um, like they were, you know, like they used to be? Yeah, no, I see people not like they used to be. I see people better because one of the things on our anxiety episode was, Anxiety at its core is all about how you deal with uncertainty and building resiliency to how to cope with uncertainty. So when you struggle with anxiety, when you have an anxiety attack, whether you get mild or severe anxiety, but you learn the skills and you know how to navigate, then you're actually stronger so that when the next crisis hits with uncertainty and people around you are crumbling and falling apart, someone who has anxiety knows how to how to navigate it. So if you, if you actually address it um, and learn from it, you can build resilience and endurance and fortitude, and you could become not as you were, you could become a much better version of who you were in a way that is actually a bracha. Do you think that society is coming to a point where being that we're treating mental health and physical health kind of like the same, that you have to address it and not look away from it, 
are people getting to the point that, well, you have a doctor, so maybe you should have a mental health professional, right? They, you should have your, you know, you have your checkups annually or quarterly. Should it be the same with mental health? I don't think we're there yet. I don't think it would be a bad thing. We definitely have to erase the stigma of it. I was talking to someone this week who I think would benefit from it, and they they were very hesitant, reluctant. And I've told them that I don't get therapy on a regular basis, but I'm not ashamed to say I've consulted or spoken to therapists not only when dealing with others, but asking how I'm navigating you know issues for for myself. Um, we have to remove and erase the stigma of it. And I think the one area where you see it a little bit, but it'd be great if it were more, is if we could normalize that. Just like a Hassan and Kala take Hassan and Kala classes before they get married, that there are a few sessions of premarital counseling for every single couple. If a Rav would say, I won't be Masada Kedushin unless you go for three sessions, learn about communication, learn about conflict resolution, learn about, learn about each other and what to expect and what's about to happen, especially that we have people getting young and they're, they're, they don't really know how to take responsibility. They're somewhat immature. And, um, you know, it's not just fun and games. You know, the wedding and who sang at it and the invitations and the gifts and what was served at it and the dress you got. And, you know, did everyone get the shirt? Father of the bride, sister of the All these things are fun and games. Then you wake up and you've got to now live with someone else. And did anyone prepare you for that? So I think it would be amazing. And there are other people working on this. It's a wonderful therapist in our community, Penina Flug, who's been advocating and pushing this, that there's a curriculum for it. But imagine we normalized it, that no one would stand out. It wouldn't be like, well, you, Hassan and Kala, are so flawed you have such defects. We have so little faith in your ability to get to stay married that we, we're going to make you go. No, everyone goes. Because if everyone goes, the ones who need it the most will go. If every couple go for premarital counseling, it's not just so that the one who really needs it will get it. It's because every single couple will benefit from it. Because even if you were going to have a good marriage, it'll be great. And if you were going to have a great marriage, it'll be greater. Everyone could benefit from it. So halavai, we can get to that point to at least normalize it in the context of getting ready to get married. You know, in Lakewood, um, you had a chazan shmuz, you know, my, my rav, Rabbi Yosef Greenfeld, but they also had follow-ups, um, vadim and people could submit questions. And, uh, I think they made a point in saying that the, the pre-shmuz is just a fraction. It's the follow, it's really in the follow-up. Um, yeah. Everything's theoretical before it's real. So that's a hundred percent. So maybe it's not three sessions before you get married. You know, maybe it's like a month after the last Sheva brachas, you need to schedule three sessions. Exactly. Exactly. And as we wind down, I wanted to ask you, you just talked for a very long time about the dangers of social media, but I don't know if there's a rub out there like yourself who's so all over social media with his Torah. So, of course, I'm not con- I'm saying that it's a contradiction, but I want you to talk about why it's okay to use it for the right things if it's such a slippery slope. And most people just don't have the discipline to use social media for the right things. Why do you find that it's still appropriate for Torah? It's a fair question. It's a question I get asked regularly, not only by members of my immediate family, but it's a question I also ask myself regularly. It's a very fair question. So first of all, again, I would never prescribe and say it's a good thing. I would never meet someone and say, you really need to get on social media. You don't know what you're missing. That's not my vision, not my goal. And Halavai, I could live in a world that was never invented or that I wouldn't be on there. So first of all, number one, there's a wonderful man, um, Matthew Miller, who helps me enormously and many, much, most of the posts that you see, he's doing. So I'm not really on there as much as it looks like I am. He is clipping and posting and pasting and sharing in that way. You know, when there's an opinion, it's my opinion, I wrote it. Um, But much of the technological part of it and the time of it, he's doing. And I don't know, maybe I should share that more so people would know that. But but I'm very grateful to him for that. And he's doing it. But even if it weren't him and it were me, 
I think it's a very simple calculation. Ba'asher husham. The reality is that there's a world of people who live there, consume there, learn there, and and derive their opinions from there. So either we can be absent from there, or we could try to engage there. And I chose the second. I chose it fairly early on. I chose it before it was super popular, and I was criticized for it. Um, now on Twitter, Aguda has a Twitter handle, and Aguda posts on, on, on pretty ironic, right? Aguda, forget arts girl, forget. I, I won't start to list the big rabbanim. What people would consider yeshivish, aguda rabbanim, Haredi rabbanim, who have Twitter presence and post. Twitter somehow got a hexer that Facebook never did. It doesn't matter. Both are already dying, and you move on to the next one. But the point was that you know the world caught up in realizing Basher Husham. Whether you want to raise awareness, raise dollars, raise raise neshamas, inspire inspire them, Basher Husham. So you know the difference is: do you use? I once heard from Rabbi Meish Tarragon. Do you use social media to be a promoter or a connector? Every post, ask yourself, am I promoting or connecting? So I don't use it. You won't find me using it. I have kind of hard three married daughters. I didn't post their wedding pictures or who sang or the best moments there. Um, I think at my last daughter's wedding from the summer, I might have shared the video that Mika Amcha Yisrael had shared of Rav Shechter helping Rav David Kohn down from right. the, the chuppah. Right. Not right. because I was promoting that we made a wedding, but but what a geschmack image that was! Right. How, how what a treasure that was that image. But I don't I don't post, you know, I, my, my on my social media it doesn't say when my birthday is because I'm not interested in you knowing or anyone saying happy birthday. It's not for me. It's not a place to talk about family or to show the dessert that I had or to feature the vacation that I'm on or to celebrate a simcha. That's not what I use it for. I use it exclusively, and if I fail, which I'm sure I do. So it's not 100% of the time, it's 97, 98% of the time. It's sharing an article, it's sharing a Dvar Torah, it's sharing a, it's promoting a program. It's taking nachas in the community. It's taking nachas in the community. You know, this past Motei Shabbos, I shared pictures from our Abbas Abanim and our mother-daughter learning, and I want others to see, and I want next week people to be, oh, that's who's there, that's what's happening. There's so many people, I got to check that out. Right. So Bashir Hashem, the reality is that there's a world who live there, and that's why others who preached against being there themselves ended up there. But I think we got to live there very judiciously, very carefully, very cautiously. Um, I don't have social media on my phone, which is an enormous, enormous lesson. Because so when my laptop's open and I'm doing work, if I post or I'm curious to see if there's a conversation, but I don't want to get lost on my phone by the temptation to see how many people liked it, how many people tweeted it, how many people followed it, how many friends do I have? So it's a it's a it's kind of a business thing. It's not, it's not on the phone. It's not a personal thing. So I think there are things that we can do in order to differentiate how we use it. But I'll end the way I began that I, I'm not prescriptively saying you should. I would never preach to someone they have to, and they shouldn't. My wife and my children don't. So and and I don't you know I don't think that they that they need to. So there are some there are some conversations and benefits they're missing, but that's a small price to pay. The good news is there's now a holy holy roller, holier-than-thou form of social media, from social media, that's called the WhatsApp status. Yes, The WhatsApp status has become essentially a form of social media for the people who want to righteous signal. I'm only being a little bit sarcastic. I don't really mean what I'm saying. But the people who want to, I think that's the term, righteous signal. I think that's yeah. it. The people who want a righteous signal, they're not on social media, but are constantly checking statuses, liking statuses, sharing statuses. So, And, and it's a great tool. I'm, I'm, I think it's a much better venue now than than the dying ones to post and I share the same thing there. We started a new yeshiva. 
Baruch Hashem Yeshiva South Florida is doing phenomenally well. We're so proud. We're so grateful. It's amazing. The world really knows about it, any part of the world that knows about it, because I try to share pictures or videos of the boys learning or whoever's come to speak or on my on my WhatsApp status. And that's and now I go places and people say, how's the yeshiva? I say, how do you know about the yeshiva? I'm curious how you know about the yeshiva. I see on your status. So status is a new form of social media. Somehow it became a kosher form. And I understand because it's only the people who are in your context. There's a lot of arguments why it's okay. And maybe it is. I'm not sitting in judgment and I don't mean to be as cynical as I sound. But I, if you don't want to be there and you want to have a dumb phone and you want to connect, more power to you. I wish we could rewind the clock and go back to a world like that. But we don't. And I think that part of at least my responsibility is if there's something that's worth saying, worth saying it in the places and to the people so that they can hear it. Yeah. And I remember you saying something about, uh, you, you weren't sure if you should say it, but you said it anyways, which I loved, um, about when you visit, you know, Rav Chaim's house, there's a big sign, but when you leave the house, you get it anyway. So I, that yeah, might be it's true, it's true all saying. over with Gedol Yisrael. Yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, who, there are a lot of people who promise they don't have WhatsApp who have WhatsApp. It right. shocks you who you get a WhatsApp message from or you can send to, or when you put it in your contact, you look on WhatsApp and you can see. And and I don't say that as a criticism. I have it. Uh, you know, I think the, the burden is on us to use the tools available to get help technologically to filter ourselves and also to ourselves filter ourselves because ultimately the tools are only as good as our commitment mm-hmm. to want to, to use them. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not defensive or apologetic about it. And I think the world is coming around a little bit more to that. Yeah, and, and I would def- I would definitely differentiate WhatsApp from Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, and whatever else I'm not equipped with. You know, because WhatsApp is controlled. It is social media, but it's definitely controlled. You know, if you don't have this guy's contacts, you, you know, you're not going to see his status. So, like, right. there is that. My final question, and then we uh, we got to call it a day if we haven't already needed to. But my final question is um, going behind your bema. What do you wish? people in your congregation or, you know, congregation members around the world, what would, what would you wish that they knew about Rabbanim? I wish that they would know that we're real people too, that we try our hardest and our best. Maybe we could do better. We certainly could do better. And just to give us the benefit of the doubt, if we walk by you at the Kiddush or the supermarket, it's not because we don't care about you. Maybe our kid has 101 fever and we're buying Tylenol, or maybe at the Kiddush, so that we're making a beeline to somebody who was in crisis. Just give all human beings should give each other the benefit of the doubt. And there, there are rotten and spoiled rabbanim. There are rotten and spoiled lawyers and doctors. There are rotten and and corrupt every. And there are among rabbanim too, clay kodesh too. But if you don't believe that your rav is one of them, if you believe essentially they're decent, then just try to give the benefit of the doubt and offer the criticism. But pay attention to the messaging as much as the message. Don't get excited because you told the rub off. You know, I get occasionally you get a you get an email from someone with a criticism and they've BCC'd a bunch of their friends because they're so proud of how they told off or they were honest or spoke truth to power or called out. The thing they don't realize sometimes is that the BCC'd friends are closer with the rub and they'll comment about the email they were on. So, you or know, reply th- all or reply all like, right. So if, if, if you have something to say, I, I, I'm. I don't live for pats on the back. I actually shy away. I'm not, I'm not, that's not my love language, so to say. I, but, but I, I welcome the criticism, the ideas. Just, you know, I guess my one request would be, and I'm sure I could do better on this myself too. Let's all focus on the messaging and not just the message. Let's all figure out how we're communicating what we want to get across effectively, not just be proud that we said it. <coughs> Absolutely. No, every present has a gift and wrapping paper. You need both. Um, that's comes from my mentor, Dr. David Lieberman. So I like that. Uh, yeah. 
Okay. So, you know, I, I, I have to, uh, I have to be honest with you. Uh, we had a lot more questions to get to, but we're going to have to do a second take sometime. Uh, you've been very generous with your time, probably one of the most busy rabbis out there in the country. Your check for a hundred thousand dollars, um, is not coming, but, <laughs> but, um, either way, this was a really, really, um, we had, a, I had a great time. I hope you did as well. Me uh, too. I appreciate it. It was a great conversation. And I, I'll say publicly, or I probably shouldn't say this, but I definitely listen to a lot of your content. If anyone's in Columbus, please don't listen to them this way. When I say them over, it's for the first time. Uh, but jokes aside, um, I really appreciate what you do, not just for your community, but with your platforms for the entire Jewish people. And uh, thank you for coming on. And may Hashem give you much, much more continued Hatzlacha um, being a public servant for Klal Yisrael. Amen. And to you as well, thank you for all that you do. And thank you for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. Thank you. To listen to all Kolot episodes and see upcoming guests, visit kolopodcast.com. We are also on all podcast players. Type in Kolot on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Podbean, and Amazon. Share with your friends and please make sure to give us a five-star review. Kolot is a project of the Columbus Community Kolel, a full-time Jewish learning center in Bexley, staffed with high-caliber Torah scholars. Ever since 1995, boys, girls, men, and women from all backgrounds and affiliations have found many opportunities to connect with Torah and mitzvot at the Kolel. Whether it's a study partner, engaging lesson, or a program, the Kolel is your one-stop shop for all your Jewish learning. If you want to know how you can benefit from the Kolel, visit thekolel.org. That is T-H-E-K-O-L-L-E-L dot org and forever be inspired.